and welcome to Comic Talkers, where comics is always the top of our discussion. I'm Mary. I'm Brandon. And we are here with a very special guest, uh, my dear friend Erica, to talk about one of IDW's comics that Brandon and I have never read before reading for this particular recording. Um, and we are going over the Transformers franchise. Um, Erica very generously picked um, about seven or eight issues for us to read um, and is going to be leading us in a discussion about a franchise that's near and dear to her heart that confused Brandon and I a little bit. To be <laughs> How are you doing today, Erica? Are you good to go? You ready, excited to talk about Transformers? Yeah, I'm always ready to talk about Transformers. So, so, so let's ask you before we go into the conversation too, um, so the fans know too, what grew your fascination with Transformers over time? I know we talked about it beforehand, but maybe share your story a little bit with the fans. Yeah, so like I don't have a lot of the nostalgia that people have for Transformers. Um, neither of my parents grew up with it, and I didn't even like the Michael Bay movies when they came out. I was still really young, but they just weren't my cup of tea, um, and I somehow missed every single, like, animated series that was running when I was, like, in that age range from, like, 20, like, 2007 to, like, probably, like, 2018, um, but... Uh, when I met my now partner, but at the time roommate, uh, I met like the first person who was actually like a bona fide Transformers fan. And the way that me and my roommates kind of got to know my um, partner more was by kind of prompting them to just info dump on us about Transformers um, and just like share what they actually loved. And the more that they talked about it, the more that I realized it was just a wild ride. It was nothing like I thought it would be. Um, they were mostly into uh, one of the comics that we read, More Than Meets the Eye, um, which is written by Jay Roberts. And his writing style is somewhere between like Star Trek and Monty Python at the end of the day, which was just an incomprehensible kind of combination. Um, but after like a full year of hearing about Transformers and trying to learn some of the characters like for them, um, eventually, uh, IDW actually announced that they had lost the IP and were wrapping up the, the series in 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, at that time, they put out a humble bundle collection of like all of the phase two IDW comics, which has more than meets the eye. So I took the dive. I didn't have a job that summer because I was getting ready for grad school. Um, and so I just spent like three months of my life reading Transformers. Mm -hmm. And I have not been the same since. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> become a fixation. So now with, that's a good point to bring up too, is now IDW is not the one that has the rights to writing it, but now Image does. Um, have you obtained the first copy of Transformers with Image Comics? I haven't yet. Like, I'm not going to lie. Um, part of it is that I'm in grad school, and so I'm just really busy. Um, 
but I'm also trying to wrap up the rest of the IDW comics that I have before I move on to the new series, but I am genuinely very excited for them. Um, I was really sad to see IDW lose the license, but it had been, I want to say 17 years and two timelines. Mm -hmm. um, so I am really excited to like see some new writers and artists um, on the series. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So we are going to turn the mic over to Erica because she is going to be the one that leads this conversation. Um, fans, do not make fun of Mary and I if we don't know as tons about this. This was new for us. Um, but it now has caught my eye to try to read more because it's like, okay, what happened beforehand and now what's going to happen after? Um, especially with the one of the first ones we're going to talk about, Remain the Light, Remain in the Light. Um, it's one of my, I actually kind of enjoyed the story, but even then I was left in confusion. It's like, yeah. what has happened before? <laughs> what happened after? So we're going to turn the mic over to Erica. She's got some questions to kind of run through us and kind of discuss the story. So we kind of know what we're going to go for. Okay. So Erica, go ahead and take it away. Yeah. To kind of start us off, I'm curious, what did you guys think Transformers comics would be like? I thought it would be more action-packed. <laughs> Like, I hate to say it that way, but because it is action packed, don't get me wrong. But I think it was just so, this story was just so heavy dialogued that it was kind of like, are you just trying to explain the story more? What's really happening? Mm -hmm. And I think I was just more like, Mary knows I love art that tells you a story. And I feel like that's kind of where I was missing a little bit, that it's kind of mm -hmm. like, I kind of wanted more of a story with art to show the Transformers more in action. I think that's the only thing I was hope, hoping for. And then when I came in Red Remain the Light, and I was like, this is pretty heavy dialogue. <laughs> like, it's like, what is this? And then reading and reading it, it was like, okay, I'm kind of getting the story now and understanding it. For me, it's a little different because I, I, I do know you very well. And I've also met your partner. So I, I've heard over the last few years quite a bit about uh, the Transformers. Um, and despite logically knowing that this was going to be more of the comics Transformers you've told me about, I did watch some of the cartoons as a kid. And of course, the cartoons and the movies, they all have humans in them. Mm -hmm. And so part mm -hmm. of me was like, are there going to be people? I was like, they can't, there can't be. But um, I don't know. I think, I think part of, I wasn't quite expecting um, who I've dubbed as um, War Crimes McGee, which is, uh, uh, what's his name, Pharma. <laughs> um, that's just what my brains decided to call him. Uh, I wasn't expecting that, but I'm not mad at it. <laughs> um, I don't like him, but I think the concept is neat. <laughs> The war crimes are even worse than <laughs> the first time you see him. I almost gave you guys um, that volume because um, a context for people listening, Pharma is a uh, ex-medic transformer. So he was a war medic and he was working on this uh, isolated planet called Delphi, where he was uh, basically killing his patients in order to give their transformation cogs, which is the organ that lets Cybertronians transform uh, to members of what's called uh, the DJD or Decepticon Justice Division, which are uh, 
they are technically the main villains of More Than Meets the Eye. You only see them for one panel in uh, Remain in the Light when Tyrus is like killing all the cold constructed people. Um, their leader, Tarn, is the guy in all purple. But Farva is like literally killing and harvesting the organs of his uh, patients to like fuel the DJD. And when Ratchet finds out, he gets very upset, thinks he kills him, steals his hands. It's a whole ordeal. But I was like, this is about a lot of medical malpractice. And I think Mary would like that. Um... <laughs> um, context for those of you who do not watch our history through comics. Uh, my academic area of focus is history of medicine, mm -hmm. um, which is why Erica is like, Mary, <laughs> this is this is the Mary thing. Mary, this horrible man right here. You're going to love him. <laughs> He's just the worst. Next zombie apocalypse um, team is going to be pharma on Mary's team for sure. Oh God! <laughs> oh, we don't. I don't know. I don't know. I might still go with Jim Boy from Basilisk. I don't know. I feel like a guy who can make zombies cannibalize each other is a pretty good move. That is okay. That is very helpful. Yeah, I can see that. Zombie on zombie. Fire. He is also evil though, so he might just turn them on his team. He might just turn his powers on his teammates and go it alone. So who well, knows? I mean, but, I mean, I'll be frank. Pharma is also evil. Pharma is way more liable to start cutting your people in half than he is to actually help you. Um, but no, I think those are all really good points. Um, and some of them are, I could say like in, in like bigger Transformers, there are more people in uh, like the other flagship series at this time, Robots in Disguise. And there is more action in some of the other series that are going on, including ones being written by James Roberts. Um, but yeah, More Than Meets the Eye is like super dialogue heavy. Um, it is kind of notorious for being really thoroughly scripted to the point where J. Rowe is currently selling uh, like printed versions of his notes, um, like two volumes a year uh, for a total of, I think, six volumes. So that's kind of how extensive he works. Um, and it sets up, I guess, a really unique kind of storytelling for like Transformers comics in particular where um, with the way that J-Ro tends to write is that there's very rarely a narrator who will tell you everything. Um, and very rarely does the narrator actually stick with you the entire time. Like you guys saw Rodimus starts off narrating this, uh, uh, this like arc and then stops like two vault, like two issues in. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, if you like look over at Windblade, you have Windblade who is talking to us the entire time and giving us tons of context and tons of like internal dialogue, um, while J-Ro kind of just leaves you there with a lot of questions um, and not a lot of answers. Yeah, um, one of the characters I fixated on that really exemplifies this lots of questions, no answers thing. I like skids from what I saw of him, and he has amnesia the entire comic. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, Skid the entire plot around Skids revolves around the fact that Skids doesn't know anything. Yes. I almost sent you an animated version that one fan did of Skids' introduction in, uh, in issue two, because it is quite literally that for the entire run of More Than Meets the Eye, 
Skids is just trying to get his memories back. Like, you don't know what happened until, I think it's literally the last volume of the comic. Like, you have to be on that ride the entire time to ever know what's actually happening with him. And it's, <clears throat> and it's amazing. Um, but it does make it, I guess, in a way, also pretty inaccessible to be a new reader. Um, because you never quite know the full story. And it can also be kind of hard to track what's important to know. You know, like this is my third go through of this comic and there's still elements, there's still scenes like Pharma getting pulled into the space bridge at the end. I forgot about that because I haven't hit the payoff yet. I've, I haven't finished the second half of the series Lost Light because I know there's a lot of character death and I'm just dreading it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just scared for tailgate I'll be honest <laughs> well, was it going back to pharma too pharma like I hate to say it kind of came across like you know he gives you that whole thing of oh is he truly a hero because of the fact like for us coming into it new it's kind of like oh here's a old Autobot coming in to save the day and the next minute you see Ratchet literally his head detached from his body it literally sitting there and pharma's the one talking to him I'm like okay <laughs> you're not good yeah just... chainsaw hands man chainsaw <laughs> hands <laughs> i also i i don't know something about the implication that like he has special chainsaws that can cut through metal <laughs> it, it got me i went like i know that that scene was where where pharma cuts the the other autobots in half i know that that was supposed to be like heartbreaking and like terrible but i was just like giggling because i was like man he's got really high quality chainsaws <laughs> so first off and this is why I, erica said i would like pharma <laughs> yeah i mean first off um i'm i'm with you so like i i mean i'm not gonna lie i've made a lot of memes of really heartbreaking moments out of more than meets the eye my partner finds ambulon's death to be so tragic because part of it is that the fandom has done a lot of work to build up Ambulon as a character. He has none of that development in the comic. You have to know he shows up in like volume two and then he gets sidelined for like the next three volumes and then he dies. And so like Ambulon cutting him in half, I'm just like, what is happening? Um, and I wanted to find it, but I just seen a piece of fan art where they drew pharma, like a guy on like a dating app with two fish and it's the two halves of Ambulon. I was like, this is horrendous and I need to send it to Mary, but I couldn't <laughs> find it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Brandon, uh, I you, love that. I love I that know. a lot, actually. I, People love J. Rose villains and they love to make memes about them. Um, you guys don't see Overlord, but Overlord is a big, big target for this because he has big kissable lips. And Tarn is another one for this where I'll talk to you about Tarn later because he's not here at all. But he should not be adored in the way that he is. But even I can't help myself. Um, but Brandon, you bring up like this really fantastic point about the fact that there are Decepticons who are like hostile in this volume, but mm -hmm. all of the major villains are Autobots. Yeah. Um, so a big thing about phase two is that it's telling stories about what happens after the Civil War. So 
I guess I'm curious, like, um, how did it kind of like reshift like your relationship to like the main Transformers story by having Autobots be like really horrendous villains? See, this is kind of where I'm glad not a lot of the big characters that I know was in the story. I think <laughs> yeah. the only way you could do this is with characters that are not as well known like mm-hmm. Thomas Prime. Like Ratchet was a part of him. Ratchet's pretty well known, but you know, Ratchet was one of them that was kind of like on the good side of this compared to being on the evil side of all this. Um, like I said, too, I talked to you beforehand, too. Tyrus was an interesting character because you don't really know mm-hmm. where he stands. It's that whole thing that it's like he does have, you know, regrets and things like that. But it's also because of regrets of decisions he's made as a lawmaker, pretty much to do this and now he's trying to reset everything back to the way it was um it's interesting because it's like again showing you that really there's really no good side in this it's straight up mm-hmm. that you really are left in confusion I, I think, go ahead mary i think too that there's an element of this story that no that deals so heavily with like the religion that the autobots follow um especially at the end and erica had made a comment to me last night about the fact that rodimus basically named himself jesus in terms of like what like the autobot religion is and how that like plays into everything about that man yeah Um, so (laughs) and and like the way that we very much see this framed at the end as almost a religious war is really interesting to me yes Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess like a quick little context on the name Rodimus. So like he goes from Hot Rod, which is his G1 name. I have my Hot Rod sitting over here uh, somewhere. But he goes from being Hot Rod during the war to at the tail end of it, he carries the matrix of um, power for a short period. And the matrix is what designates a prime a prime. And a prime is primarily their political leader. Like Optimus Prime is more of a secular figure, but historically have also been like religious figures. So after carrying um, the matrix, Optimus renames Rodimus Rodimus and he enters the naming scheme of the primes. And like, oh my God, this. I love Rodimus so much, but like it explains so much about him because like this guy is so incompetent and he is trying so hard. <laughs> like he <laughs> he spends this entire series being one of the worst leaders possible. Like it's it's really bad. I'm not gonna lie. And we see that to- even just in like the few issues you had us read yeah. where he's like getting He's like, I've already decided we're going through this portal. Um, yes. Either get off the ship or you're coming. Yeah. Yes. Like, he claims to be a, a more democratic leader, but he never actually gives people the chance to vote. Um, he claims to be trying to become a that, better that leader, but he doesn't hold himself accountable. Oh, yeah. He had the statement towards the beginning where he was like, yeah, we had that trifold leadership where these two would always like fight with each other. And so I could just do whatever I wanted and it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, oh my God, he is just, I love him so much because he's just such a mess. Um, 
And it's like this mixture of like an absolutely ginormous ego, which I mean is really characteristic for Hot Rod. His name was literally Hot Rod at first, um, but like this giant ego. And then also something that you get a little bit more of, but I do think kind of comes across, especially in like actually the art for Rodimus whenever he's talking about his role as leader like that really fantastic shot in the cell where he is just covered in shadow like a lot of like literally the shadow of being a prime the shadow of carrying on Optimus's legacy and like the shadow of trying to live up to who you're supposed to be without knowing what that's supposed to look like for you like it is such like a rich character and then J. Rowe goes like on his Twitter and like <laughs> makes it semi-canon that Rodimus would piss in a sink, <laughs> would pee in a sink. Um, <laughs> so it's like, he's just, he's so, he's perfect. Um, actual perfect character. But um, it kind of ties back to like this bigger question that I think Brandon, like you're totally right a lot of the story that gets told in like more than meets the eye is rethinking the dynamics of the war and like who is a good person. And I don't think that's possible if you had Optimus Prime like as the spearhead character or even someone like Bumblebee. Like, I don't know. Well, and see, and that's where I love the panels where um you see um, Tyress kind of switch on the switchblade. Mm -hmm. um, seeing like somebody like Optimus Prime, like what's going on kind of thing, kind of the uh, unknown a little bit is great because it's like we said, at this point, you wouldn't have those stories if you put somebody like Bumblebee, like you said, or Optimus or anybody like that in the main roles of the story. Um, and I think too that in with that, you're seeing more of like the psychological effects of a war of that kind on the good the good guys the good side of that war but you're seeing it in the i guess average person yeah uh, because these aren't the big names that we know really yeah and so yeah. you're seeing after the war how they've changed and it's not always for the better well, just like yeah. you, you said, Pharma is a perfect example of that. Pharma, who was an Autobot, um, medic, everything, and then now look at what he is doing. He's not really even a good guy anymore. He's, oh, I'm doing this. And then you see that he has vengeance. And now he sees he has a hatred to Ratchet, of all people. You know, there's so many things that's coming out. Like, that's interesting. Now I kind of want to see what happens. Just like Tyress is a good example of that as well. Yeah. And what is also, I guess, like so engaging about pharma is this emphasis that it's not that he became a bad guy after the war. It's that he has been actively harming um, other Autobots and specifically wounded soldiers throughout the entire war. He has been a, like a considerably bad guy for like thousands of years at this point and while actively working under the Autobot badge. Mm -hmm. And um, this was actually a moment that I was thinking a lot about like how J. Rowe does his narration. 
it's um the scene in the cell when Rodimus is uh like talking to his crew about the last time Tyrest was seen. And Minimus Ambus, uh, who is also Ultra Magnus, I know Mary, you don't like him, but he's going through it. He's a good guy, I promise. Um, I wanted but... to like him because he's green and has a mustache, and then his personality. <laughs> he's got that Oliver Queen mustache a little bit, huh? You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you're right. We'll that little curl at the end, you know, and we'll be fine. You know? <laughs> We could talk about Ultra Magnus and what he's doing here in a second, but I promise he gets better, Mary. I promise. He's a good guy. He's a good boy. Um, but Minimus Ambus tries to keep Rodimus from talking to his crew about uh, the, oh, let me get the exact word, because I'm pretty sure it's Aquitus. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. The Aquitus Trials. And these are basically like, the Transformers equivalent to the Nuremberg trials. And what's really important is that they find not just Decepticons guilty of war crimes, but a lot of Autobots. And that information is specifically kept from Autobot veterans. I think too, it's kind of implied in that sort of sense that like pharma is like those Nazi scientists who were hired by the US government following the war. Because he is a talented medic and he is a talented scientist, but then you see him basically working for Tyrus. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think that's a perfect point to bring up because it was like kind of like you said, the Nazi scientists coming to help create the nuclear bombs or help create other scientific studies. And it was us and Russia always going after us. And so at this point, it's actually a good point to bring up, Mary. Good job on that end. I, I didn't see that first reading it. I was just trying to understand the story. A little oh, yeah. And I was like, not putting two and two together right now. I'm just trying to get through the story and see where we're going. No, that's that's so okay. Again, I'm on like go three. So when Mary was messaging me last night, like what is happening? I am just vibing. I'm on the other end, like, don't you see? It's a metaphor. <laughs> now she did you is how I did her when we came to quiver and stuff. Like, it's been a while since I've read this. <laughs> like, what are we going with this? And she's like, Nathan Blood. You know him as I'm on like eight levels deep of Green Arrow, Lauren. Brandon's like, was that a reference? I didn't realize. <laughs> reference. Like, so this is this is my payback. Yeah. Um <laughs> Green Lantern Batman, I'm pretty good with the lore, but when it came to Green Arrow, I was like, I don't understand any of this. Like, where are we going with it? Yeah. And yeah. kind of talking, going back to the dialogue quick, too. I literally thought I was reading a Kevin Smith story. Because <laughs> when you see Kevin Smith, you know it's heavy dialogue. Uh -huh. It's just straight up, pure heavy dialogue. Yeah. Oh, and my I, gosh. It's like Kevin Smith coming and write Transformers now? Wasn't yeah. shocked, but still... <laughs> Jero is so heavy on the dialogue and I think it's um so something that I thought was um like both like a really good point and also really funny at the beginning was your comment about like the lack of action when it comes so like um let me double check I'm pretty sure we're at our main artist for this issue 
Yes, we are. So at the beginning of the series, Jero had one of the artists on More Than Meets the Eye was Nick Roche. And he's another, uh, he's both an artist and a writer for IDW Transformers. And he and um, Jero have like worked on quite a few projects together. Um, if I remember correctly, Nick Roche stopped working on More Than Meets the Eye because J. Rose scripts were so demanding for what the panels needed to look like because he just packs them with detail, but it's like all like plot foreshadowing. So the language is, so like the dialogue is super heavy. The images are super heavy. It is not like a skimmable comic. Um, so I feel like it probably took me like three times as long to read our section of like more than meets the eye than it did to do Windblade because Windblade is just like flip, 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 beautiful art. This is great. Um, and more than meets the eye is like, see okay, what's so happening. I need to take notes. I need to <laughs> annotate what's happening. <laughs> That's literally what I was doing here. I had like a whole bunch of notes right here. <laughs> I have my notebook too. So I was like, okay, I got questions now. <laughs> like, who yeah. it's who it's like it's like a school assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my sticky notes next. Um, make sure I print them, write my notes, highlight, whatever I gotta do. Be like, okay, here's all my questions. <laughs> here's a script. Yeah. Yeah, it's like here's all my questions. When do they get answered? Oh, volume 10. Throw <laughs> <laughs> no, my book. No books. <laughs> Oh, when do we find out what happens to Pharma's body? The next series. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, oh, we're playing the long game too hard. We're too deep into this. <laughs> um, but yeah, always the question of where to go next. I'm I'm curious, what were some of the questions that you guys had? What were some questions that were like bubbling up in your head? So I wanna I want I guess more I'm I'd like to go back to Tyress quick because oh, yes, of course. Uh, interesting character. At this point, because the way they make it sound like he dearly has no allegiance to anybody, he's not an Autobot nor a Decepticon, but and but he's a lawmaker at this point. You know, I guess more my thing that I kind of was left in confusion of is what was his role in make or you know for why he had to make the switchblade and kill a lot of transformers because of this i i guess more that was where i was left in confusion a little bit i know they talked to magnus a little bit about it but i was uh -huh. like, okay i still don't understand something here. yeah so um it is so uh this would make a little bit more sense if you guys got to see more of Ultra Magnus. So Ultra Magnus is the chief enforcer of the Tyrus Accords. So basically he enforces uh, like, I guess we can think of it like international law. Like the Tyrus Accords sets uh, the law for all Cybertrodians and like especially like law about like basically war crimes. Mm -hmm. um and ultra magnus becomes like the soldier who is supposed to embody like um what it looks like to live by those accords and also serve as like this living threat of what will happen if you don't follow them mm -hmm. so 
Tigrist is older than the Autobot Decepticon um, like conflict, much older. Uh, and he was already part of the government um, prior to like the Civil War breaking out. So he's always been in that legislative role. Um, what we see happening is that he definitely has more allegiance to the Autobots. Um, there's not a similar, there's not like a counterpart to Magnus in the Decepticons. So even though he doesn't have a badge, he's definitely more Autobot aligned, which is important. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that he kind of spends all this time believing that like he and the people who he's governing with are doing the right thing, that they are preventing crime, that they are making a safer society. And then when he discovers that all these Autobots were committing heinous war crimes during the war, he locks himself away and basically starts going mad. And what he does is he blames it on people who are cold constructed. And this is like a piece of lore, which becomes relevant and more explained throughout like the entire series. But so when they get to Luna 2, uh, yes, wait, or do they find Luna 1? When they get to the moon, um, when they get to so Luna, Luna 1. Thank you, Luna 1. I was like, I'm pretty sure Luna 2 is actually the one still hanging around. But when they get to Luna 1, it lights up with all these sparks. And these are basically like the hearts of Cybertronians. Traditionally, sparks rise up from like the heart of the moon and form these things called hot spots. And then they get carefully harvested. And then the kind of like Centico, uh, like Metallica around it, um, like forms like the Cybertronian body. So this is kind of like, I guess you could think like a natural birth. Um, however, after a certain amount of time, sparks stopped forming um, naturally. And so they started constructing them. And we get some of this backstory here where at first they said they were splicing sparks and then creating new ones from that. So kind of like cloning, mm. but in actuality, they were using the power of the matrix to generate new sparks. Um, and then like putting those into already forged bodies to then be born. Um, and a big part of this is because the prime, uh, the prime like regime that precludes the civil war is focused on imperialist expansion. This becomes a really, really big plot line for the rest of the series, but they were focused on moving Cybertronian power away from Cybertron and out into the stars. And this really takes off during the Civil War because they are killing so many Cybertronians that they don't have enough like soldiers to replenish with. And so they start cold constructing soldiers where they uh, splice a spark they build a body, they shove the spark in and then they're like, okay, so here's a quick catch up. You're a Decepticon, this is what's going on. And then they just kind of shove them out the plane to go fight. Um, I know, right? It's like, that's wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they come down to like this new technology and we understand that there's a lot of discrimination against people who are cold constructed. 
Um, there is a lot of discrimination in Cybertronian society, period. They basically have a working caste system before the Civil War, which is what Megatron actually fights against. Um, it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, he's like very much coded to be like a like kind of fallen socialist leader. Um, but uh, the group that Tyrist ends up blaming for like the corruption of what he sees to like for what he sees to be the corruption of Autobots and Cybertronian society is the cold constructed people. So Tyrus is a fascist. Like that's really what it is that in the fallout of civil war, everybody's trying to find answers for what happened. And Tyrus goes down the route of fascism and tries to literally kill every single cold constructed person that exists. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess like how does, um, is that jogging like any thinking on the comic? Is is it making things, I guess like click make sense? Um, this is honestly more just a, a slightly funny comment, but I was thinking more about the Ultra Magnus and the way that it's described to work in the comics, it feels like the Dread Pirate Roberts, if the Dread Pirate Roberts was a cop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Which is a frankly horrifying way to run this because basically once an Ultra Magnus seems to like start questioning, um, they are basically killed and replaced. Am I, am I reading that wrong or am I remembering that wrong? Um, so the other Ultra Magnuses die in battle. Um, so they don't really get the chance okay. to question, but Minimus Ambus is definitely replaced because he starts questioning. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think okay. it's more that the previous Ultra Magnuses don't get the chance to. Minimus Ambus is also dealing with the fallout and the fact that in many ways he no longer aligns with the laws that were created during that time period. So it's very much like again it's like it makes no sense in the moment and then on the third go at like one in the morning it's like it's all a metaphor it's a metaphor for rethinking systems after catastrophe <laughs> you can tell jero works in politics the but that was another good question too is minimum max um yeah. at this point um or magnus um the thing I had for him that I kind of was left in confusion to a little bit was, okay, so we see him, the first time we see him in this comic or in this section that we read is in the cell with the other Autobots. And then he escapes yeah. like nothing, goes out and talks to Tyrus. Now, my question is too with that, because I know you say he's kind of like a cop that kind of like enforces the rules kind of mm -hmm. thing, but my thing is, it's like, was it the, and I could have missed this too, was it the Autobots that made him start questioning things? Or was it more of his own intuit or intuition to go, something's not right here? That's more my question too, because I kind of was left up and like, okay, what's going on with this? Yeah. So it's the power of friendship. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, 
I'd love to talk about power furniture comes everything. So jot that down. So <laughs> jot that down. That applies here too. They all love each other, and through friendship, all things are possible. Um, they're also all like explicitly gay for each other. Um, this is the series with the first explicitly gay couple in it, and there's quite a few of them. Um, but so if you're sitting there like, oh, this feels kind of romantic, it is like I'm not gonna lie it is um but yeah so we don't get to see as much of them on the ship in like social areas like swerves which is the bar um but on the lost light yeah technically they're on this quest to find the knights of cyber utopia which is like kind of if you were like let's go find king arthur and the knights of the round table let's go find camelot guys like it's it's a pointless quest um but even though they're technically on this quest really it's just people living together and growing to love each other and growing to be friends and that's what ends up affecting like Minimus Ambus. Um, like he doesn't have a bunch of crimes to like enforce against. And so he does really stupid things like badge inspections. <laughs> and he starts loosening up because he starts loving his friends and learning that like he doesn't have to be on high guard all the time. Um, so it's not something that you get to see a whole lot in this situation. And this is why I swear that he becomes a better person, Mary. I swear. It's just that he is like, this is like the very beginning of his major character arc to like figure okay. out who okay, he that makes is. Sense. Yes. It's him figuring out who he is without needing to be Ultra Magnus. And he's got the Oliver Queen mustache, remember yeah you love um, and he's green. <laughs> he's green you know that's very important i like his design yeah. because it's like we, mm -hmm. like he has like an outer body but then he also has a inner side of him and i love I think... that his inner side looks like a toy soldier kind of thing the way he looks at i sent erica a message last night like how many heads does he have <laughs> he because has like, so what... many What's what's the dolls called? Like little Russian? The Matryoshkas. Yeah, the Matryoshkas. He's open one. There's another one, right? There. That's exactly what it is. He just keeps getting smaller, and I love him. Um, I think one of my favorite panels ever is because I think this is so funny. I think it's very funny to see Rodimus put up against anyone, like Rodimus versus Tyrus. You see how small Rodimus is. But then the uh, the frame of him and <laughs> Minimus, and he's like fully like squat down to be beside him. It is so funny to me. It is just amazing. Um, yes. Oh, Minimus, his design is great. Um, I am curious to know, uh, and if you need me to like point out which characters the, these are, that's so okay. What were your thoughts on Whirl and Cyclonus? This is, uh, Cyclonus is the purple guy with the horns, and Whirl is the dark blue helicopter. So They have, like, their own, like, I, mini, like, side story. You're, just to confirm, you're talking about the purple one that had, like, he scratched his, scratched his face. I love Cyclonus. I, I love adore him. Good. I love everything about him. <laughs> you would. I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would too, Mary. <laughs> he, he, so Cyclonus is also the one that helps tailgate near the end, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 
Yeah. So at first I was like, oh, that son of a gun's going in there to fight the idiot. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you just jump to the next scene. It's like, oh, you saved him. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Gosh, that was my first reaction too. I was just like, I, like, I mean, I love them. Um, I thoroughly like also ship them as a romantic couple and they are, they do become a romantic couple. Um, but like that entire scene, I mean, Tailgate like slowly dying of basically robot cancer is absolutely heartbreaking, especially because. And um, I think, I think too, that makes it more heartbreaking because every once in a while in the comic, you see like the countdown timer of Tailgate's life. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Which That's just puts everything into perspective of how like the story started. It's like Tailgate is framing the story. Yes. I sat there the, <laughs> the whole dang time and sit there and just look at this and go, Cyclonus, you could have done this the whole stinking time and you didn't do it. Well, he didn't have the sword yet. He didn't have the sword until he met with the um circle of light. Um yeah. I know it's just and then he one of them said something to him that got him thinking it might work. It is. It's world during the battle. Like he figured this out during the conflict. No, he doesn't even figure it out. World does. Yeah. Yeah. But what was it? And then what I hate to ask this because I'm just I'm blanking on names. There are so many names that were thrown out here. It was Cyclonus and then who one more time? Whirl world i hate it world is the like oh. robot that looks like it's falling apart right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. pushes world off the little ledge i've been like i'm, I'm with you there i would have pushed you <laughs> i love him i just love cyclonus and just in there he's like no no remember you're supposed to we're supposed to start off fresh deal it's like screw you <laughs> I know it is oh my gosh it's so funny I oh my gosh I love Whirl um where I go back and forth on who my actual favorite character is but Whirl is definitely one of them but at this point in the series he is unbearable like he is just he's like the most trollish little creature out there like he is just he's pure chaos he's pure spite he has no desire but to kill, but he also helps Cyclonus and he helps Tailgate and like it kind of, I guess, like peaks at something a little softer in him and a little kinder in him that like comes out with them. Um, but oh my gosh, yeah, maybe like to, to focus a little bit more on Cyclonus because he's probably the bigger character in this particular volume. He is just the mixture of like his stoic, like really scary look because he's also like kind of an ex-Decepticon. So like his really- Yeah, I was picking up on that. Yes, yes. So he is an ex-Decepticon and people despise him when he first gets there, which is why Tailgate is the only one who like is willing to talk to him. Um, but he goes from being like this really gruff, really like traditionalist kind of scary person to someone who has like a deep spiritual connection with his religion, who has the heart of like a newborn, despite being the oldest person there. And who is also the one who like 
isn't just like consoling tailgate but it's actively trying to help him and like the face scratch at the beginning like punishing himself for not being able to help tailgate immediately like it's just he's such a heartbreaking character even just in this first uh even just in this volume that was going to be my other question but i think you answered it more of why cyclonus because we get that little hint there too of him going from decepticons to autobots what like kind of triggered his change like what made him go from one side to the other but I think you've kind of already explained that a little bit, but especially with this religion and things like that, really sparking it. Yeah, where a big part of that is genuinely just that the war ended and he's super religious and he's like, Knights of Cybertron, okay, let's go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so we see a lot in these issues is Cyclonus sort of being less able to deal with tailgate's impending demise than tailgate is yes yeah and even what we know about the decepticons it feels almost like he doesn't know what to do without the one person who's been kind to him and in the face of the potential of losing that person he's going to punish himself because he feels almost like he's almost squandered what has been mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that's a good interpretation of him um like he's very much somebody who um, hasn't gotten a lot of good things in life and has been a lot of different people um because like i mean it kind of gets mentioned with tailgate but typically like Cybertronians don't live long enough to ever die of old age to the point where they weren't totally sure that they could until pretty recently um but Cyclonus is older than Tailgate so he's had more life he's been able to do more things with his life uh, he, he even like because he's been kind of rejuvenated prior to the series starting is basically like having a second life in addition to the one that he's already lived because he's already like a million years old um and so it's like not just squandering like the care that tailgate has shown him but like squandering all that life that he has had that tailgate doesn't even get because tailgate is a really old man but prior to the series, he trips, falls down a hole, and then gets stuck there for like the next two million years. He literally misses the entire war because he was stuck in a hole. So the only life he's had is a couple months with the lost light that he has had. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Oof. He's just been on a pointless quest for like the entirety of his life yeah and then finds out he's dying in three days (laughs) finds out he has three days to live and spends most of it in jail welcome to the life of tailgate Um, do we maybe want to talk a little bit about the Windblade comic? Absolutely. Let's go right ahead and yeah. 
go ahead and lead that conversation, Miss Erica. Yeah, I, oh gosh, where to start? So like, I know what I guess like stands out to me most about this comic, but maybe we shouldn't talk about the ending first. Um, I guess, oh, where to begin? I guess like, let's just start with like initial like thoughts. Like how did you, um, Windblade is not a super familiar character because she's a super new character, but how did this story, I guess, like, meet your expectations more or less? I, I'll run, I'll go first if you don't mind, Mary, because I actually have a fun party because Windblade was a voted in character created by. Yeah, she was. I remember this came out in my comic book store and they were advertising it like crazy. And yeah. And so I went on because I'm not a Transformers person, but I was like, you know what? If I can help make history, let's make history. And I ended up actually voting for a female, but then everything else I voted for was wrong. But <laughs> but it was such an interesting character to come across. And what I love in that first page that we get is kind of like, oh yeah, the universe almost came to an end. And kind of gives you kind of like breakdowns of Optimus Prime Megatron. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if I'm not mistaken, I'll quote it here. Windblade, the newcomer, arrives on Cybertron and makes a place for herself as one of the like the key members of this now not war or but like the main three main groups. Yeah, comes off cross strong because it's that whole thing of now this is a whole separate thing from Autobots and Decepticons. Even though I, if I'm not mistaken, she is an Autobot. Um. <laughs> I think she's an Autobot in other series. So this is something that I really like about Robots in Disguise. Um, and like, yeah, I love what like Jaber's doing in More Than Meets the Eye with like a mixture of Autobots and Decepticons on like his ship. But in Robots in Disguise, which is written by John Barber and is the other mainline series. And you kind of know it's supposed to be the main series because it has Bumblebee, Starscream, Prowl, RC, Wheeljack. It has everybody, including Optimus Prime by the end. Um, and then becomes Transformers, which, yeah, that's the main, that's the flagship series. Um, so in their capital of Iacon, which is on Cybertron, they have the now technically X, but still holding on to colors, Autobots and Decepticons. And then they have, they get called nails. I'm not going to use that term again because it's actually a derogatory term against them that they do not like, um, but they don't have a better name really. But they're basically unaffiliated Cybertronians who go into diaspora when the war starts. So they don't side with Autobots or Decepticons. They just get out of there. A lot of them leave on what are called Titans, which is what Metroplex is, and they become like floating cities for them to live on. And they live the next couple million years just out in space waiting to be able to go home. And that's uh, what, and that's part of the group that Windblade and Chromia belong to. So people who did not like what was happening tried to leave and have now been separated from their homes for all this time um so yeah i absolutely adore that dynamic where like it's not just the two main parties that we've seen but a third party that has no allegiance 
and actually has a lot of, um, I guess, like grief slash anger at both parties. Um, so yeah. And, and another thing I want to bring up about Windblade 2 in this comic that we were reading, I love the art design more than I like um, Main the Light. I think the yeah. art like it gives you that manga feel. It gives you that type of and Windblade kind of takes the like that persona of like a manga strong woman in that in mangas and animes um, that I, I love her design. I think her design looks beautiful and the fact like yeah. her wings are sitting here in the back i just love it i love her art face design it's just amazing the way they just did it and how they designed her yes. um yes but i love the way they're built here that they're mm -hmm. actually not just like i gave remain the light props there because it actually gives you more details in the art but like here it's simplistic it's everything oh. and it's amazing how they form it oh my gosh Yes, it's just gorgeous. Um, Windblade's main design, like you mentioned, is like fan voted on, and it's fan voted on by both uh, primarily American and Japanese Transformers fans. Um, I will say, when I first saw her design, I knew that she was fan made, and so Windblade is a lot more. I, I guess we'll say her body is a lot more detailed than other female Transformers, which put me off at first, especially because um, like she's very like geisha coded, like she's very, she's very much like designed um, to like bring in traditional Japanese elements. And so I was a little, I guess, nervous about that at first, but she is designed by Japanese and um, uh, English speaking fans. So a lot of those concerns kind of got dissuaded with that. But the art in this book is just amazing. Um, the main artist for the series is, um, they've since changed their name from when they were published here, but Saren Stone or S Stone. And they are just fantastic. I love how, um, I mean, the colors are gorgeous too, but I adore how they do um, their action. And I really love, I guess, the emotion that comes through everybody. They are all so emotive, both in very like comedic manners. Um, there are so many screenshots that I have from like this book in particular, because I just think the panels are so funny. Um, but also when it comes to the drama, like the one panel of Windblade reflecting on Starscream's surprise when she confronts him about the bomb. What a gorgeous close-up of Starscream's face that just says, like, it just screams with how he's feeling without knowing what's in his head. Um, it is fantastic. But that's hard to do with characters that are made out of metal. Yeah, so I, I'm curious, um, did you guys see the twist coming at the end? <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> no. I think I was just so enthralled with what was going on. And then when that happened, I was like, oh. And then I went back because I was like, okay, did I miss something? And then I went back and I was like, oh, I didn't. That's just a twist. <laughs> okay. I knew. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. Curious to see what Mary thinks, because Mary Mary's more of our twist person when it comes to comics and everything. Yeah, I didn't see it coming. Um, I think part of that too is because Erica has talked up Wind Windblade and Chroma to me, 
and how devoted Chroma is for like a year and a half. So I was like, no, I, I didn't even suspect Chroma for a second. <laughs> well, she is dedicated there, to Windblade. <laughs> Well, yeah, Chroma. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't necessarily know that I would. I would consider what happened to be like dedicated to her safety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, Chroma being kind of her side person a little bit, kind of like her right hand man, is the one responsible for creating the bomb and almost ignite. But not it did ignite, but it almost yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, it. it, it, it it speaks a lot that hey, not everything is what it seems to be here right now, and that not everybody's happy with the decisions that we're making right now. Yeah, like um, I I will admit, even I, because the first time that I read it, I was loving like every ounce of it, and then I got to the twist, and it gave me such like a sour taste in my mouth. Um, that on the reread, I enjoyed it a lot more because I knew what was coming. But even then, I wasn't picking up on, like, hints towards the twist. I think there is, like, one little bit of narrative from Windblade, like, Chroma should have been the only person I could trust here. And I was like, that's a little too, I was like, that's a little too small of a hint um, to, like, I think really make yeah. this work. But I think they relied too hard on red herring. They forgot to actually, like, support the twist in any meaningful way yeah and I kind of think this is in general an issue with Starscream as a character because I I'll be honest I'm just not a fan of IDW Starscream or IDW1 Starscream anyways um I have I have watched like the original series now and I'm slowly working through the cartoons in my free time and I love him in G1 like he is so funny he is such like a perfect gag character but when you try to translate that into like an ultra serious Starscream who also wins all the time, because like this is pointed out, but he got straight up like elected president of Cybertron. Like he is their leader. How does how did that happen? Um, but it's like when you try to do this like ultra serious version of him who is still super deceptive and only reliant on himself but still somehow always wins it's not and also apparently has had assassination attempts on him and has never died <laughs> has has almost been killed multiple times has tried to kill a lot of his enemies actually no he has actually assassinated his enemies and his friends um, and also, right before this, you get what's called Dark Cybertron, which is a crossover between Robots in Disguise and More Than Meets the Eye. And this is where Windblade and Chromia and Nautica, who goes with MTMTE, get introduced. Um, he looks straight up the Antichrist. Like, when he makes the reference, like, I am, uh, what does he call himself? I am the chosen one. He's the chosen one to straight up destroy Cybertron. <laughs> like it's wild. Um, but it's yeah, also like yeah. it's 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 giving attached too hard to Kylo Ren in the new Star Wars movies. 
Yeah, wanting to have like this really, I guess, like handsome baddie, dark, brooding, like he, dark, he wants brooding. To up to his mantle before as well, but not yet. It's yeah, and even like um uh oh my gosh, in uh remain in the light during the scene where the kill switch gets switched, um Starscream also calls for Megatron um and so there's even yeah there, this is a big theme i almost picked um a, a different issue for you guys which is actually one where i really like starscream's character um but like also this pressure to try and live up to what megatron was or what megatron wanted to be without ever actually having the same ideals as megatron um but it creates this kind of confusing situation for him as a character in the story where like it is so believable that he is the one doing this, that he would in fact like, like plant a bomb in a place that was like, that would make his own like citizens vulnerable just to hurt Windblade. And nothing is really done to dissuade that reading, um, which is where I think a lot of like my frustration comes with this one in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The what was it? And again, correct. I correct me if I'm wrong because I don't remember names very well. Kind of for bodyguard or a right hand person. Chroma. Chroma. Thank you. He. It's like he feels like he's not doing wrong here, and that's where other yeah. bring things. Like he even when he tries to explain it to Windblade, it's like, so you think what you're doing here is going to save us, and it really isn't going to. It's going to cause more problems. Yeah. And it's it's different and starscream kind of being what the one person that's kind of like hey wake up a little bit this is what's happening i never liked starscream one <laughs> of him because um i just like i think my first introduction to him i hate to say it was the michael bay film and I <laughs> it was bad i hated his design he just looked like he had a big old chin and then like a little scrawny head and I hated his character um it, it just I just never liked his character and for him to be the main person that's kind of like putting like sense a little bit to everything it's it's weird it's just not what you see it, it is um I can say like part of this is also how he grows as a character throughout robots in disguise um, so he's initially put basically in like a trio of protagonists. It's Starscream, Bumblebee, and then um, a non-affiliated uh, leader named Metalhawk. And Bumblebee and Metalhawk both die during Dark Cybertron. So it's just Starscream at this point figuring this out, which is a really, I guess like it's a really complex dynamic um to think about like the person who spends his whole time trying to overthrow the people in power and uh like get his own like get his own gain now needing to figure out how to lead and care for an entire planet of people mm -hmm. um but i think i think this is what like I ended up really loving in this reread of Windblade, where you have the mixture of Starscream, who's like a known super selfish character and is being positioned as like 
the selfish like representation of Cybertron or specifically Iacon in this situation. And oh my gosh, I, I'd love to talk about him like in the scenes where they capture Windblade and are like torturing her. The repeated use of the word alien and like using that yes. as like deposit her as a threat. But then Chroma also uses a kind of similar like term like a similar rhetoric about the people of Iacon where she's like they don't want us we need to take care of our own home and Starscream is you are an invasive alien trying to destroy my home I'd love to talk about that dynamic more because that was something that I thought was really well done on the second read and I think that that can almost be somewhat foreshadowing in terms of Chroma's actions, but it's not something that you'll catch until you know what Chroma did. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's like it's not something that makes sense fully until like Chroma's revealed, but adds a new layer to those narrative bits. Again, like Windblade saying that Chroma should have been the only person she could trust. Well, why? Why is that? It's because they're from the same place. Um, and so that like kinship is supposed to trump any other relationship. Um, and I think mm -hmm. too, and with that, it's almost as if Chroma is jealous of Windblade being the city speaker because it's almost like she's seeing it as Windblade has turned her back on her home to devote herself fully to this new one. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, like, there's the dynamic of Windblade um, as a city speaker. Her face is painted to look like Caminus. So she, like, changes her design to reflect and respect where she comes from. But now she's a city speaker for a different city. Um, and she is, like, I think uh, maybe we can look at just, like, that final scene where she does fuse with Metroplex. Because I think that's such, like, a rich, um, rich section of this book. Um, but like she is uh, the representative of another city fusing with another city and not being able to connect with like her origin. Um, and I think it's doing some like beautiful work for thinking about like, I guess what it means to try to figure out like, I don't even know what to call it, but to like rebuild connections and figure out who you are again. Um, yeah, and I think, I think too, there's something about how the city itself is a displaced person. Yeah. And how she can connect to the city on that level. Right. Because she is also a displaced person who has left behind friends, family, connection, and isn't sure that she'll ever see them again. Exactly. And I think another good point, too, to bring up is where, you know, like she says, it's it's like showing who she truly is and showing who, what a leader she can be, too, is when she does find out what Cronus has done and trying to make the deal with Starscream or Starscream a little bit. But the fact being that, you know, like she says, Starscream only cares about himself. He's not going to do anything that's going to go against it. So she even states to him here, our actions, my actions are nothing short of sedation. You mm -hmm. can reveal it to the public and kill me, or you can cover it up, keep it to yourself. And pretty much it's like they said, you can't live without us either at this point. 
we yeah. it's not a choice so again it's it could look be looked at as like we said with remain in the light remain the light the corruption of it or also you look at it as she's out to save her people right now yeah anybody else again showing the neutral side of this story yeah it's like this battle between the desire to like self-isolate and keep doing what's familiar in order to stay stable like um something that i think after watching like g1 and idw's war is caused it's basically like a civil war caused along lines of like social um uh what is the best word for this i guess like it's a social revolution where uh the decepticons start off as um their tagline you're being deceived is basically saying you're being deceived about caste you're being deceived about class these social constructions are not real you are not your transformation and they rise up against like an oppressive regime um but then they start turning fascist and the autobots rise up to say you were right on the first go but maybe let's not start killing people. And then they start killing each other for the next couple million years. Um, but a big part of why they end up expanding is because they're in search of resources. They're always looking for energon. So it's a war for resources. So when it comes to like Starscream and his team mining Metroplex, it's like, we don't want to think about what this relationship could look like. We just want to exploit the Titan in order to keep our city running. But Windblade is coming from a diasporic community that still holds on to and then developed Cybertronian traditions that have been lost because of war. And so she comes in with like this like revised version of something that had previously existed, basically offers it like this is a new way of going forward. And then when Starscream like completely rejects it, starts trying to figure out almost like a hybrid of them. Like, what does it look like to work together? Um, instead of like fixating on the past the way that Tyrus does, it's very much dedicated to trying to figure out what the future looks like. Um, and I love that. I really love that aspect of like this phase of Transformers comics. Um, because it's not part of the story that we get to talk about a lot. I'm not the gonna... rebuilding after war is to me always going to be a more interesting narrative than the war itself. Exactly. Absolutely. All I was going to say is a funny note, and I did read Starscream's um, uh, monologue here in the story. I literally tried to sound like him from the cartoon. You know, <laughs> trying to do it, I was like, and then I got to the point of it. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, I can't do that anymore. I can't do this. And I made I made her son, my girlfriend's son, laugh so hard because I tried so hard to do it, and I was like, yeah, you know. And he's like, you got it. I'm like, yeah, you ain't gonna get me to that point. I can't do that. <laughs> That's it. But that is the other thing about these comics that I love like so much. Um, because they start off as cartoons, we already kind of have an idea of what a lot of these characters sound like. So like, while like, whenever we do run into Optimus Prime, like, it it fits. He stays the same. He's perfect. I bought it on eBay. Uh. 
Um, but with Starscream, him being president and being such like a major dramatic character, I think of either the Gen 1 Starscream voice or uh, Tom Kenny's Starscream. And thinking of Starscream as sounding like a mixture of SpongeBob and Ice King is so freaking funny. Like this man is committing full on like war crimes. He is like turning into another like fascist leader and it's Ice King. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for masked anonymous policemen. <laughs> this is something that I think is like so wild and like one reason why I have enjoyed exploring like the much older like renditions of Transformers so much is because like I was talking about this with my partner when I first started getting into into the comics and they are such like a drastic tonal shift from what you'd expect from the cartoons because the cartoons are all like Y7 um like they're all very much made for like um younger kids um kids. they're supposed to be yeah they're for kids um like their levels of violence are max teen titans um and then you get over here and like people get torn in half their heads get popped multiple times um uh the immediate go-to kill for windblade is to try to rip starscream's head off well, there's a terrorist attack well, um, things like we say too like a good one and like that too is another thing that idw publishing put out teenage mutant ninja turtles yeah you know, from the 80s and you don't really think that it's just like oh they're just ninjas who just knock people out and everything it's all good when you get to the comics it's something totally different it's more yeah. cool. it's more cutthroat they're gonna kill you they're gonna do this yes. why can't we get that in the shows compared to just getting it here and I just, want it with the oh. 90s Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it makes you wonder, like, especially with the nostalgia factor that these shows have, especially for like our generation. Mm. And then the fact that the comics are popular. Um, Cage Meet Ninja Turtles, Transformers, these are huge franchises, both in visual, like in like television media, but also in terms of comic media why are they not like capitalizing on the fact that these comics exist in the nostalgia factor to create like these wildly successful adult animation i would love that there are like transformers anime but they're definitely not to the same levels as the comics um i think part of it is yeah i would love to see it kind of translate more either into like an adult animated like movie or animated series I think it would work well as like what DC does with their more like adult oriented animated movies um I think that would be really fun because right now it's kind of like a, a one-way like pipeline of nostalgia into the story because the comics are like very obviously made for like older teenagers and like adults um, there's not a lot of cussing, but there is a lot of violence, and there's always a lot of politics, especially with Phase 2, um, just because of the nature of, like, the setting and the story. 
But even then, they constantly pull on ideas that do originate from like Gen 1 um, and from like these shows that are designed for kids. Like when I first started watching Gen 1, I think it was just in like episode two or three, there comes a scene where Starscream like, you know, does his thing. He tries to, like, he, he does our Megatron is dead. No, I Starscream is the leader of the Decepticons. Like he does that. And then he gets the absolute crap beaten out of him. And Megatron is like, that's the thing about leadership, Starscream. Someone is always coming after you. And they do that in the comics. Like they pull that line into the comics with Starscream. Like there are all these ideas, like even things like with the Transformers movie where they kill all of the first like group of like Autobots, like everybody dies. Megatron dies, Optimus Prime dies, everyone freaking dies. And then Hot Rod takes over. That even is what kind of happens when you enter phase two. It starts with a comic called The Death of Optimus Prime. He's not actually dead and he comes back pretty quickly afterwards, which actually kind of makes me sad. I'd like this, I kind of would have liked to see the world without him for longer. But um, it's like you have the death of Optimus Prime and now the younger, less known Autobots are the ones taking charge and trying to figure out what this means for their world and like that is such like a beautiful way of bringing in the meta where what did they do with the movie they killed off all the old uh, Autobots in order to tell a new story and sell new toys but it ended up being world-changing for so many kids who saw it in theaters and just like it's world-changing for the characters in the comics like I it is such like a beautiful mesh of nostalgia and fandom and fan creation that just comes through in this. Like, I, I think it's fascinating. Like, so like I told you too, my first experience of Transformers was the movie. And, yeah. and it was for me, the first one was really good. I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was, it was weird, but it was kind of my weird. And then they came with the second one. I was like, why did you need to make it? <laughs> Michael Bay, that is what he does. Cash yeah. grabs, cash grabs. But I enjoyed seeing people like that. So, like for me, I knew who Optimus Prime is. Everybody knows who Optimus Prime is. Mm-hmm. But that was my first introduction to Bumblebee. I didn't know who Bumblebee was. So, or Ratchet or Rawhide. There was a lot of different ones. I'm like, I can get behind them. Like that's who I'm into. So when I read Remain the Light, I was like, oh yeah, I know who Ratchet is. And then yeah. when you see Optimus Prime, like, hey, there's Optimus. But then that was it. I was like, okay, I don't know. Any-. And they referenced Bumblebee. Yeah. But like here, I knew Starscream. I knew yeah. like, oh yeah, I know who Starscream is now. You know. But for Windblade, it was just a different character, and it worked. It really yeah. it was a really a fascinating character to really see. It's kind of like you said, the old traditions compared to what's really happening now coming yeah. still. Yeah, like, and it's so interesting, like, the choice of who, um, the like, uh, the people from Caminus are is so intriguing because you have Windblade, who is, like, a new fan-made character. 
you have Chromia, who is from G1, and you have Nautica, who um, she is an IDW um, original character. So you have a relatively new character, a well-known character, and a brand new character all arriving on the same ship and all going off to different stories. And Windblade, I just, I adore her. I love everything about Windblade as a character because like she kind of like captures this essence of she's trying to think about how to collaborate, about how to reach out and create new connections. Um, She's not a spectacular fighter. So all of her action comes through just getting to know people. Like that scene with Waspinator where she sends Chromia away and just is kind to him. Mm -hmm. Like it is, it's not something that you see in any of the other interactions with Waspinator. And it's not something that you see in a lot of like Transformers. People usually pull guns first. Um, But Windblade hasn't been to war for the past 2 million years. She's been living her own life and like making friends. And she actually comes from a culture where friendship is really central to who they are. Um, And so she is someone who immediately goes to collaborate. Um, Chromia is again holding that old guard, which is interesting for a character who's from G1. Um, And then I won't talk too much about Nautica because you don't get to see her, but Nautica comes in and like, as a new character in this new story, becomes one of the key players in Skid's story. So I think this is a good way to end this segment. Um, we want to thank Miss Erica for coming on to talk Transformers and teach us some knowledge when it comes to the Transformers universe. So, Erica, do you have any plugs that you would like people to follow you on? I know you said you had Discord, things like that. What would you you want to plug in some plugs for yourself? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I'll be honest, I don't use social media that much. And I'm currently locked out of my Twitter because my phone died with my two-factor authentication and backup code. Um, So so I'm not really active anywhere right now. Um, But instead, I will plug, uh, please try and follow the different artists and authors who work on the Transformers series. Um, Some of the artists like Alex Milna in particular do a lot of like their own art. They sell zines, they sell commissions. Um, it's a really great community to follow if you're interested in this, um, and some really great people to support. Awesome. Awesome. And you can, like, you can find Mary and I on Comet Talkers anywhere on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Comet Talkers. Also listen to this great podcast and many other great, um, comic book and anime podcasts on Modify for Podcasters. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And without further ado, my name is Brandon. I'm Mary. Oh, I'm Erica. <laughs> and remember, buy it on eBay. Um, um, anyway. <laughs> and may comics always be the top of your discussion.